0: Hello, and welcome to the 6th edition of the Draculina Podcast. I am Hugh Gallagher, owner of Draculina, at one time the greatest magazine ever to cover the B-movie scene, until our friend and foe the internet came along. I recently reviewed a movie on Horrible Hugh's Coffin' Reviews that was really good called Her Name Was Krista. It's a sordid little tale of a balding, overweight loner, Stephen, who gets involved with a hooker and things just go from bad to worse. This movie is heavy on character development and a lot of talking, which is usually the kiss of death for a no-budget horror movie, but Krista is so well acted that it just draws you in for its morbid little ride. James has had a long career in B-movies, starting out at the age of 12 with J.R. Bookwalder's 1989 movie The Dead Next Door. He wanted to be a special effects person, but when he found out he wasn't artistic enough, he became an actor and production assistant on that movie and in later years, a leading man in a long list of Bookwalder movies. He has had an off-and-on career over the last 30 years and has compiled a large list of movies that he's been involved in, with acting and writing. But with his movie, Her Name Was Krista, he also took the reins as director. Before we jump into this interview, let me plug some websites. Go to draculina.com to get back issues of Draculina, Scream Queens Illustrated, She, Oriental Cinema, Pinup, and many, many more. Including my movies, Dead Silence, Gorgasm, Garotica, and Gore Horror on DVD. Use the coupon POD20. That's P O D two zero at checkout and get twenty percent off your order. Also, I have a new website at horriblehue.com where you can see all the latest movie reviews by Horrible Hue, and you can also get the Horrible Hue T-shirt or even a free Horrible Hue sticker. You'll have to go to horriblehue.com for info on how to get the free sticker. You can also see the review of Her Name Was Christa, which has a few of James L. Edwards' responses heard in this interview on video. Definitely worth checking out. I'd also like to ask that you follow this podcast so you will be notified when new episodes come out, as well as subscribe to the Draculina YouTube channel, where it's mostly horrible hue right now, but I hope to add some new stuff in the future. But I need those subscribers. Hey, it doesn't cost you anything, so check it out. Go to... Draculina.com or HorribleHue.com for links to the YouTube channel. One last plug, Horrible Hughes Coffin Reviews is now available on Avail TV. If you have a Roku, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire, search for Avail TV and add it to your channels. Avail TV is full of movies, programs, and, of course, Horrible Hughes Coffin Reviews. It's free, so be sure to check out Avail TV. Before you start listening to this interview, I would suggest you watch Her Name Was Krista as there are a lot of spoilers in this interview. If you want to see the movie first without any idea of what's going to happen, you really should watch it before listening. You can stream or download Her Name Was Krista on Amazon, Google Play, or Vimeo. If you would like to get the DVD, you need to just go to Facebook and message James L. Edwards for ordering info as he has a really good deal with a $20 DVD, and a $25 Blu-ray package. In the Blu-ray package, you get the movie on Blu-ray, regular DVD, and two mini-movie posters. I purchased the Blu-ray package, and it's a really good deal, because these prices also include postage. Okay, without further ado, here is the interview with James L. Edwards. He started acting at the age of 12 in J.R. Bookwalder's The Dead Next Door, Makes me wonder about your home life. Uh, How did you approach your parents about auditioning for a no-budget horror movie and then being one of the production assistants during the filming at such a young age?
1: The odd thing about my involvement in The Dead Next Door was it was actually my mom that noticed the ad in our local newspaper and they were essentially looking for zombies for this, uh, this feature film and at the time, I had no interest in being an actor. I was a Savini kid. I wanted to be a special effects makeup artist. The, the problem was I had no artistic talent whatsoever. So uh, I ended up con- contacting uh, um, the number in the, uh, uh, in the article. Uh, it was uh, I think JR was operating out of his grandmother's basement at the time. And the night before, I took like six Polaroids of me covered in like fake blood and uh, Pumpkin Guts and show up, show up there all enthusiastic. I'm 12 years old. And, um, and they hired me as an effects artist um, and very quickly discovered that I had no clue what the hell I was doing. So, but they liked, my, uh, they, li- they liked my spirit, so I, they kept me on as a production assistant. So, uh, but it's funny because looking back, as far as your, your question goes, looking back now that I'm a parent It's like the idea of sending my kid out at 12 years old to a bunch of strangers making a horror movie. It's like, what the fuck would my family think? So so I don't know if they were just trying to get rid of me or what, but but that's how it all started.
0: (laughs) Were you paid anything during that four-year shoot? Everyone involved, to my knowledge, everyone
1: involved in The Dead Next Door had uh, signed uh, a deferred salary contract, which basically stated that once the movie made X amount of dollars... Uh, we would see some amount of payment, and that was 1985. And I don't, um, uh, I, I have no clue what the movie's made. I have no clue uh, what, but to my knowledge, I don't think anybody ended up getting paid on it. It was always just a, a labor of love that we all wanted to make a movie. So I, I mo- the most of the people involved, I know there's been a couple that have been very angry about this, but most of the people involved with something uh, with that project. Just did it
0: because we wanted to make a movie. We didn't care if we were getting paid or not. What was shooting like on that? And what made you think this was something that you wanted to continue to do?
1: Um, I always joke about making Dead Next Door in the sense that because it was my first film, because of my age, that it was like my own personal Woodstock. You know, where it was like basically a bunch of people getting together and just living out a dream. So I mean, it was it was ridiculously long hours. It was exhausting. A lot of tempers flared. A lot of missteps. But at the end of the day, especially for somebody who had never done this before, it was really genuinely exciting. Um, I'm not gonna lie. It was it was not an easy shoot at all. But the idea of hey, you know, we're making a movie in Ohio that's being financed by Sam Raimi. It's like that, that was a that was a huge deal. I think for everyone.
0: Bookwalter was involved in a series of no-budget movies made by David Dakota. I know Todd Sheets was making movies for him, and I remember people talking about budgets of $1,000 and $1,500. Were these movies made that cheap? Actually, in some cases, they were actually
1: made less than that. The the Cinema Home Video Days, essentially what had happened was we were still waiting in post-production hell with The Dead Next Door. And J.R. had gone out to Los Angeles and met with David Dakota, who was uh, a director who had done um, *Creepazoids* and Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Ballorama. Um, and they formed a friendship, and David Dakota was interested in financing a series of small shot-on-video films to be pre-sold overseas and while they were being made. So the idea was he would give us the titles and the uh, the t- I'm sorry the, the title and the box art and we were and he would sell it overseas while we were making the movie, and if I'm not mistaken and I could be wrong this was a while ago but I believe the original budgets for the first two were maybe two or three thousand dollars a piece at most and by the time we had gotten done, you know I, I take that back because um, the first two were actually Robot Ninja and Skinned Alive those were shot on sixteen mm and those, I believe, were around fifteen thousand dollars a piece. And then after that, the shot-on-video movies happened, and those started out at like two or three thousand dollars a piece. And by the end, I'm pretty sure *Humanoids from Atlantis* and *Galaxy of the Dinosaurs* were shot for a thousand a piece. So it was—it was. There was not a lot of money, hence not really good movies. Was acting something you could live off in your prime? Oh, I've never been able to make a living off of acting. Uh, in fact, I always joke that. Um, the only time I've ever been successful financially, as far as acting, is doing industrial films. Uh, those, the the kind of films where it's like, if you get hired at McDonald's and they make you watch a video, I, I, I used to do those videos. I used to act in those. And it was funny because a lot of times I would do those type of films, those type of videos, and I'd make in a day what I ended up making on a feature that I was starring in. So, uh... But realistically, I mean, if I was doing this for the money, I would have left a long time ago. It's just one of those things where it's, you really have to have a passion for doing this. Because if you're going into it thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to get rich, it's like you're going to be pretty sad pretty quick.
0: Sam Raimi financed The Dead Next Door. I know many people looked at his life like going from rags to riches. Was everyone working on these no-budget movies thinking that this was just priming them to get noticed for the big time, like Raimi?
1: It would not surprise me if most most people that got involved during that time period, as far as the late 80s, early 90s, were hoping, I mean, at the very least hoping for financial success, or even, I mean, more importantly than that, building an audience for your, for your films. Um, and again, we all looked at Sam Raimi as the role model, the person that, okay, this is a guy who went out and made his independent film, and found incredible success uh, with it. So, now, granted, it's one of those things where that's typically not the way it goes. Typically, you're going to make a movie, and even if you're happy with it, you're going to struggle to find your audience, you're not going to be financially successful, and you move on to the next project, hoping for the ne- uh, for success after that. But, yeah, I, I, it would not surprise me if most of us were
0: looking to the success story of Sam Raimi as, okay, this can happen to us. Yeah. What problems did you have with Book Walter in Tempe video that made you break off with him for a while? Um, JR and I had worked together
1: from 1985 until his move to Los Angeles, I believe around 98. And I was involved in pretty much every Tempe production with the exception of Kingdom of the Vampire and Midnight 2. And the reason for that, Kingdom of the Vampire, I was actually supposed to play the lead. And, unfortunately, I was out of town during the time that they were shooting, so I wasn't able to commit to the project. Um, Midnight 2, to be quite frank, I just didn't like the screenplay. I, I didn't want to be involved in the film. They'd asked me to play the lead, and I just just chose not to. Oddly enough, both times, the lead ended up, when I turned it down, the lead ended up going to Matthew Jason Walsh, who I think did a great job. Um, but it was one of those things where... Um, when you work that closely with someone and have that amount of time period where you are working together in close proximity everybody eventually rubs each other the wrong way and I'm not blaming him, I'm not blaming me I'm, I'm, I'm accepting my portion of the responsibility, I had quite a big ego I'll be the first to admit, but it was just one of those things where eventually it sort of wears on you and we just kinda separated. and We actually stopped speaking for about 15 years and what actually got us working together again was when I was trying to get uh, my directorial debut, Her Name Was Krista, off the ground. Um, I was running an Indiegogo that ended up failing miserably and I happened to notice that JR had shared the Indiegogo on both his personal page as well as his uh, Tempe page. And I was really impressed because, like I said, we hadn't spoken fifteen years. So I'm like, um, I reached out to him. And I said, "Hey, you know, I I'm, I realize you and I have a lot of bad blood right now, or we have, but I wanted to thank you because that was a really class act. I, I really appreciate you sharing that for me. And also, I want you to know that if it wasn't for you, I'm well aware I would not have had the opportunities that I did, and I wouldn't be making movies. And he reached back uh, back out to me. He's like, "Hey, you know." <clears throat> we're both we're both older. we both have kids. The stuff that was important back then as far as anger and, and fighting and everything it's not so important right now. so I wish you the best of luck and if there's anything I can do, let me know and of course that led me into going well actually you need to do a cameo in my movie so 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 yeah I mean we did have a period where we were not each other's biggest fans but luckily we've moved past that.
0: You were married, divorced, and remarried. Did your acting create any of your marital problems?
1: I was actually married, divorced, married, and divorced again. So, um, yeah, um, at least for my second marriage, my involvement in film did cause a lot of um, friction as far as the relationship goes. I think a lot of it was because my second wife and I had gotten together and... I really believe that part of the reason that she was attracted to me was because I was an actor and screenwriter. She was attracted to people that were in the arts. But once we got married, she had basically had enough. She was like, listen, you doing these movies is taking too much time away from the family. I want you to stop. And I did. And it was. I'm not 100% blaming her simply because of the fact it's like. It was very easy for me to leave the industry um, because of the fact that at that point I had done 35 movies and I'd only admit to three of them. I didn't have a really great track record, so it was one of those where, eh, you know, this will just be something that I can show the grandkids and it'll be done. Um, I will say that once, the, once I stopped doing movies, then all of a sudden the marriage crumbled. So it was one of those, well, you can't really have it both ways. So after I divorced my second wife... I really felt a huge amount of regret as well as pressure to get back into it because I had lost roughly 13 years of possibilities of me acting. Now, on the plus side of that, what I found is that now that I'm older, I'm getting the opportunity to play really, really fantastic roles that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to play in my 20s and 30s. So, there's... I mean, that's a silver lining. It's not a great silver lining, but at least it's there. Have your kids seen any of your movies? (laughs) It's funny. um, I have three kids. Um, My youngest, uh, Harlow, is fascinated with the fact that I do movies. But, unfortunately, the type of movies I do, I can't really show her anything. I'll show her bits and pieces, the safe parts, but that's about it. Um, My other two kids have zero interest in what I do, they they don't want to they, they don't care that I make movies. They they don't have the same the same love for cinema that I do. My my son doesn't even watch movies, so it's just one of those weird things where it's like, uh, yeah, you, you know, I'd be lying if I wasn't secretly like, oh, uh, why, why don't you guys take take a look at this that I did? But now now they they don't have any real interest in that. But Harlow, my uh, my youngest, is really into it, and I've actually snuck her into a couple of things that I've done.
0: Besides Her Name is Krista. what is your favorite movie that you have acted in?
1: It's still to this day bloodletting. Um, it's the one that got me the most recognition. I, um, I had a lot of fun making that film, even though there was a ton of chaos and turmoil. Um, and it's the one I get most recognized for, which was nice. I did get a small fan base because of that film. That, and I'm fascinated by serial killers, so the idea of playing one was incredibly attractive to me, especially considering that the two opportunities that I had to play a serial killer before, I turned down. So this was a big deal. The thing that's bittersweet about that is it actually is also one of those things where... Matthew Walsh, who wrote and directed the film, had basically come to me with a project saying, I wrote this as, what if James L. Edwards was a serial killer? So it wasn't really a stretch for me to play the role. And because of that, I kind of got pigeonholed by a lot of people as, oh, well, James Edwards just plays himself, and I wasn't really considered an actor. Now, again... The nice thing about that is that really fueled my fire when I did direct my own film, finally, to make sure that I would play a role that was unlike anything I'd ever done before and unlike me personally. So I I guess there's pros and cons to both.
0: You wrote the remake of Psycho Sisters. Was that your biggest movie as a screenwriter? I wouldn't necessarily call Psycho Sisters a big movie. Uh,
1: (laughs) Psycho Sisters came along very... It was a very odd situation. I was... A review, the head review writer for Alternative Cinema Magazine, and I was kind of known as almost like a shock jock version of a critic. Basically, I had a big mouth, and I didn't mind tearing people apart, something that in my old age I actually really regret, especially now that I've made my own film. It's like, well, it's real easy to talk shit about somebody when you haven't even done it yourself. But um, P. Jacqueline, who directed Psycho Sisters, the original version, um, had submitted his film for review and I reviewed it and didn't care for it I just basically said, you know with the exception of Tina Krause in the film, I didn't like the movie I and I, I was very um, uh, I was very shitty as far as the way I handled it like I did most of my reviews but I just basically gave it a bad review well, Pete being the classy guy that he was contacted me and said look, um, you didn't like my film, that's fine why don't you put your money where your mouth is? You write the uh, you write the uh, we're rebooting it already. Why don't you write it? I have the, and he sent me his version of the script and I re, I, re, I agreed, I rewrote it. And it's funny because I was supposed to be in the film. and the thing that killed that was that the two lead actresses that they chose as the the new psycho sisters, I had used one of them as a consistent punching bag in the pages of alternative cinema in my reviews. Even going as far as trying to get uh, readers to send or send donations so we could get her acting lessons. So once they found out my involvement in the film, they almost walked. And what ended up happening was. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Pete or his producer in contract, and said, yeah, you know, the part that you wrote for yourself, yeah, it's not going to happen, because otherwise we're going to lose
0: our lead actresses. So again, my big mouth got me in trouble is what it comes down to. There were several years where you did very little acting. Why the hiatus and then the return? Mm.
1: Well, again, the reason that I... Um, um, again, the reason that I got out of the independence scene was because my second wife was not a fan of me being gone for the amount of time it takes to to make a film. So it was one of those where I had to make a decision. It's like, okay, do we make the marriage work or do I continue following my dream? And I chose the marriage, which, again, did no good because the marriage eventually crumbled. So I went through like a... I want to say between a 10 and 13 year stint where I'd done a handful of movies during that time but not the the extent that I should have so once my divorce was finalized I was like you know what I it's time to get back into this well what I had found was that where I still had a small amount of indie cred from the movies that I did in the late 80s and 90s it was a whole new ballgame I mean a lot of people the younger filmmakers had no clue who I was and if they had seen the movies that I had done they just weren't familiar with my work, so it was a bit of a struggle to start off with. And I started doing some films. I was fortunate enough to work um, with um, uh, the Campbell brothers on three projects. Um, um, I, a filmmaker out of Cleveland. Uh, yeah, a couple. A couple other. Uh, um, it's funny. Uh, what was it? Uh, my uh, my lighting uh, director on Krista. Uh, Tim Novotny ended up, uh, that's how we met, was he had asked me to be involved in his uh, uh, vampire film, uh, uh, Pharisee, and we've continued a uh, working relationship as well as friendship ever since, which has been nice. But as far as directing Krista, as far as directing my own feature, that all came about because, A, between the amount of time that was lost and because I was getting older and kind of afraid of the future. I wanted, I had a lot to prove. I had to prove that I was an actor rather than a indie personality. I had to prove that I could direct. I could, I had to prove that I could do serious content and it all just kind of fell together from there.
0: Her name was Krista seemed to be a real commitment in many ways for you. Did you actually shave your head to appear bald for the part? How long did you don that haircut and mustache? Um, As far as the
1: character look of Steven in Her Name Was Christa, yes, I did shape my head for the role. I grew that great pedophile mustache. Um, It was important to me to, again, create a character rather than me playing myself. What I didn't take into consideration was that because of situations that were beyond a lot of our control with us parting ways with our lead actress, and then spending a good half year both searching for our new Krista as well as rehearsals, um, we ended, I ended up having to don that haircut on and off for almost two years, which made me real popular with the ladies, being a single guy in my 40s. Um, do I regret it? No, no. I, I, uh, again, I would not have done it any other way. I'm completely happy with the way the film turned out. I'm not going um, to say it was easy or pleasant, but but, it, uh, but I, th- I think it all worked out for the best.
0: You refer to your movie as a horror version of The Notebook. My initial thought was a demented version of Can't Buy Me Love. <laughs> I could definitely see that. I know you did a failed fundraiser for the movie. I saw your video to raise money and I thought it was really funny. What do you think makes a successful fundraiser? I wish I could tell you what makes a a successful fundraiser, because I
1: certainly don't know how to do it. I mean, again, our goal was to raise $10,000 to put towards the budget of Krista. We raised 11% of that. Did that deter you in wanting to make the movie? The only thing that was really aggravating about that was for years, probably since bloodletting on going back to MySpace days and um i would get on average about two or three messages a, a week from fans or just people in general saying oh you know i really loved bloodletting and you should direct a movie i would back that and i i, I thought about it it's like okay yeah yeah i just i'm not i don't have any real passion to direct but yeah uh, that's great and then when i finally did it not one of those people <laughs> put towards the uh, the Indiegogo. And again, I get it. You know, there's enough Indiegogo projects out there that end up ripping you off. Everybody's tight on money. I get it. But it just, I, I I guess I foolishly and maybe selfishly expected more support. Now, luckily, we were able to find other means to finance the film. But if you're asking me how to do it successfully, I mean, you're better off asking somebody like uh, like Todd
0: Sheets, because, I mean, he's very successful with it. Um, I, I have no clue. <laughs> I heard you used money from an inheritance to finance the movie. Did you back the whole thing yourself? Um, no. Um, I... What was it? Um,
1: most of the budget from Krista ended up uh, just coming from uh, personal loans and just, just slowly maxing out credit cards. Um, the... Uh, there was a little bit of money that uh, my parents had left me on the insistence that um, uh, that I made a movie, which I was always incredibly uh, gracious for. Um, I, I, it kind of blindsided me because I didn't, didn't realize it when they had passed away. It was something that, uh, that was put into the will. But most of the money, actually, we just used the Kevin Smith method, where it was like, just max out the credit cards and hope for the best.
0: I think everyone has an educated guess as to who your lead actress was originally supposed to be, and her name was Krista. Why did she drop out, and why do you not mention her name in connection with the movie in any way? I've been very um,
1: careful as far as to talk about that portion of the film. As far as, yes, there was an original actress that was in the lead of Krista, who I had worked with quite a bit. This was supposed to be our comeback movie. Because we hadn't worked together in 20 years, but we had built kind of a reputation of being like an indie couple. Um, When I wrote the script, I had her in mind. And unfortunately, not to trash talk, uh, but it was something that she was very much okay with when she read the script. And as we got closer to shoot her stuff, she wasn't comfortable with the nudity. And I felt the nudity was very important to the project. So, I unfortunately had to let her go. It's not something that I wanted in any shape or shape or form, but again, I couldn't compromise my movie on that now again, not to trash talk, but I will say that after the exit of this actress that again i'm not going to mention her name anybody that knows anything already knows who she is so i'm not going to, I'm not gonna mention but um. I will say this, we ended up, after letting, uh, letting her go, um, auditioning 73 actresses for the role, and Cheyenne was the very last one, and not only was Cheyenne just absolutely phenomenal in her audition, I can't picture the movie without her. I think she is an essential part of the film, and I think it would have been a completely different movie with the original actress in the role. So all things happen for a reason, and I think in most cases with this film, we had a lot of situations where people that I was counting on, that I trusted, kind of fell out. And in every case of that situation, somebody, in my opinion, that was, again, not to be offensive, but worlds more talented
0: came, came aboard and turned the movie into something that was far beyond what I expected. When doing your nationwide casting call for Krista, were there any women that were just completely appalled by the (laughs) storyline? No, we never had a situation where anyone was completely
1: appalled by the storyline. But that's honestly because I was very secretive of the script. Um, The only people that saw the actual script until they got the opportunity to at least see the rough cut were my director of of photography, uh, Gordon Cameron, my producer, Sherry Rose... And there were three, uh, you know, I take that back. There was one actress that we were considering for the role of Krista that we were, well, obviously the original actress as well, but we were um, considering for the role of Krista um, before we found Cheyenne. So everyone else was pretty much in the dark about what this project was because all of the, the majority of the real shock scenes, we shot with a very close set. So... I wanted the crew to be as surprised as everybody else. Let's put it that way. And and in fact, I wanted most of the cast to not know what they were getting into as well. But as far as anybody being offended by the material, I've I've luckily yet to see that, which has been nice. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, uh, I want people to be moved by it, but this wasn't meant to be some exploitive shock movie that the the real horror what what I always say this but the real horror to me in this movie is the fear of getting older and being alone the necrophilia aspect of it
0: is the icing on the cake when preparing for a movie a lot of people will research their subject matter did you visit any prostitutes before making this movie (laughs) um okay this I'm going to put a disclaimer on this answer
1: Yes, I did interview several prostitutes to, while I was writing the screenplay for this. Did I partake? No. Now, keep keep in mind, that's not, that's more of a personal uh, preference rather than a moral one, because to be perfectly honest with you, I'm very supportive of anyone in the sex industry. I, I think that I think people should be able to do what they want. My thing is I'm also a germaphobe, so the idea of being with a prostitute scares the hell out of me, even though, honestly... It makes sense, you know it's like if if this is something that if they're providing a service that people need, that's fantastic. I couldn't do it, but that doesn't mean that I look down on either the workers or people that do, you know But yeah, we did um, we did interview a few prostitutes mostly because I wanted to get the pricing right because I had no clue what Krista would charge. I had no clue. Uh, about, I mean, again, they say write what you know. Well, I've never been a prostitute, so I, I don't know these things. So we were fortunate enough that I had a friend of mine uh, who worked for uh, uh, a Vice, as far as uh, police, uh, uh, the local police station, and he kind of, on the sly, gave me a, uh, gave me a couple numbers and just basically met with with former, no, no longer working, former prostitutes that uh that were nice enough to just basically kind of give me the details on how the the inner
0: workings of the industry works this was sort of your orson welles project as writer director producer and lead actor what sort of pressure was it not only to complete it but to make sure it was the best it could be this uh this film was
1: an immense amount of pressure but only towards the end um you know what I'll I'll, even t- I'll take that back. It was a good amount of pressure, but one thing you have to keep in mind, I did this movie with the intention originally that this was going to be my song, well, my Swan song. This was gonna be the last movie that I ever did. And what I and part of the reason I kind of felt while I was making the film, I kind of felt like a fraud in the sense that I have a true love for acting. I, I, I absolutely love acting and I love screenwriting. I've never had a burning desire to direct. It's not anything that I really wanted to do. It's just I'm also a control freak. So I was so passionate about this script that I wanted to make sure that it was done my way. Uh, I'm Again, I'm always appreciative of any roles that I'm able to secure. And I'm also always thrilled when one of my screenplays gets purchased or I'm I'm hired to write someone's, uh, someone's script for them. But more often than not, I'm playing roles that I don't necessarily want to play. And for good reason. I mean, the director will want to put their own stamp on it, but I was tired of seeing my screenplays turned into something that I didn't envision. So we toyed around with the idea when we first uh, started on Krista of hiring a director. And I met with several friends who were directors and again for with good reason they wanted to put their own spin on the material i wasn't willing to budge on that and that's when my producer had said well why don't you just direct it i you you've been in this you've been doing this for years why not and i very arrogantly was like yeah i'll direct but again the problem is you're directing you now you're directing a film and by the way you've never directed before you're directing a film and you're also playing a role that is incredible. That you're incredibly emotionally invested in, and it's also an incredibly meek role, where it's like you have to be very, very weak while you're on screen. And the second I call cut, then all of a sudden I have to be in charge. So that was that was incredibly trying. Um, and I'm not going to lie, there were many, many frustrating situations on the film. Most of the uh, most of them. Again, just because it's a completely different animal to be an actor or a screenwriter and get the luxury of showing up on set, doing your job, and then going home. I had to pretty much, as a director, you have to live, breathe, and eat this movie for as long as it takes to finish it, which in our case was like two and a half years. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it was incredibly trying. Was there any point in which you felt like walking away? Um, No but that's only because of the fact I am incredibly bullheaded and headstrong as far as that goes. There were points in the film that I probably should have walked away, and I refused to do it because I had invested my time and money and effort, and it was again something that... this was my passion project, and with it being my passion project, it was like not only was it something that I desperately wanted to bring to an audience, but i also wanted to do it in a way where one thing that irritates the hell out of me is when actors will cast themselves in their own film and it's obviously it's um trying to think of the word it's uh, it's obviously a fluff piece where it's like oh look at me i'm i'm a rock star i'm cool and it's like no that's that's i i don't know i just to me it, I wanted to show I could play this part. I mean, it's obvious in the script and in the film itself. Krista's the one in charge. Even after her death, Krista is the one in charge. Steven is more of the follower than leader. And i that's what attracted me to the character. That's what attracted me to write the character.
0: There usually isn't a lot of dialogue and character development in a really low-budget movie. And when there is, one usually loses interest. But her name was Krista kind of sucks you in to find out what is going to happen. What was your reaction to the first cut and did you have to pull anything out or add things to make sure the story held the viewer? I will be the first to
1: admit, I write very dialogue-heavy screenplays. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In this, I, I do feel that it works. I think that it's one of those things where I didn't want to do a movie where... You basically have cardboard cutout characters that become flesh props. it was uh, it was really important to me to build an actor's piece because again, I'm an actor first, so th- I mean that makes sense. Now, that said, I never intended to make a two hour movie. That was never my intention. It just sort of bl- blossomed into that. And we worked really hard to try and trim it down. but to be quite frank with you, Every time I made a trim on it I, it, I felt it messed up the pacing. So I made my peace with the fact we've got a longer movie. Some people are going to be against it. Festivals hate it. Festivals absolutely hate it. Only because of the fact that it's like, okay, now we can only show four movies this night instead of five. You know, so festivals absolutely hate it. Distributors were, we had eight distributors that were very interested. The rest of them were very upset by the running time. And I get it, you know, you, you want to you, you make sure that you're in and out, it's just not my thing. And, but as far as cutting the film down, I did end up hiring an, 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 another editor to do a festival cut. And he did, to his credit, trim the film down by about 25 minutes. And I viewed it once and promptly killed it. I, I didn't because it, it, to me it just was not the same movie that I wanted to make. I get that it probably would have gotten us more festival play. I get that it could have opened the doors for other audience members. But at the end of the day, what good is it if I, I, I remember I had a distributor tell me, you know, this would be the difference between two hundred people seeing your movie and a thousand people seeing your movie. Well, a thousand people seeing my movie in a version that I'm not happy with, that's, that's not a win. That's not a win for me. I would rather have a more limited audience and make the movie I want to make. It's not a wise business move, but at the end of the day, I'm the only one that
0: has to live with the, uh, the final product. I know you feel for Steven, but if you were to see a Real News article where a man was arrested for screwing his dead longtime lover, what would your reaction be and how do you think he should be dealt with? a really good question. Um, to be perfectly honest with you,
1: I mean, obviously Stephen has severe mental issues, whether or not it happens during Krista's demise or beforehand. So, but again, did he commit a crime? <laughs> you know, um, he didn't kill her. So... I don't know how the laws would treat that. I have to assume that exactly what happened in the movie is what ha- would happen to a real-life situation where it's going to be probably lock up in a mental facility. And uh, But the good news is that if we can find an audience, you can actually find out what happens because I've
0: already written a sequel. So,
1: so we'll, uh, I'll just leave it at that.
0: What was the reasoning behind the kind of Fight Club twist with Nick at the end? My idea
1: with the... Um, the revelation that Nick may or may not exist was basically to hammer home the idea of Stephen being a completely unreliable, uh, uh, unreliable narrator. But it was also important to me not to give you a definitive answer as far as that goes. You can draw your own conclusion on whether or not Nick exists. There are about, I think, 12 clues that he might not exist, but every single one of them are met with the possibility of him being real. Um, Even the big reveal at the end where um, uh, Scooter McRae's uh, detective character says that they have no record of a Nick Perkins working at a Sasha's uh, psychiatrist character is very quick to bring up, well, couldn't he have given a fake name because he's protecting somebody? So even then, I didn't want you to have a definitive answer. I didn't want it to be a Tyler Durden-type situation. But... I want there to be doubt in your mind, so that was that was the big thing with me. It was the same thing where throughout the film, a lot of people are expecting Stephen to kill Krista we We kind of kind of set this mood where it's like, okay, Steven's entirely too nice, he's entirely too naive, he's entirely too um childlike there's got to be something wrong with him. So as an audience member, you're watching this thinking, okay, when is this guy going to snap? I want you as an audience member to feel like total shit by once Krista passes because of the fact that it's like you've misjudged this character. And the, the rationale for that was, my hope was to make it a little more of an easier pill to swallow when Steven does the things that he does once Krista passes. Because again, I want you to feel... Okay, I don't agree with what this character is doing, but I understand him enough now that I know why he's doing
0: it. So that that was the mentality behind that. What did Cheyenne Day think of the Finnish movie, and how has it affected her career? Cheyenne was a
1: tremendous supporter of the Finnish version. She, um, I, again, when you're working with an actress who you had never worked with before, it's very difficult to judge their feelings especially for somebody who had never really done any type of independent cinema work before she had done runway work and modeling but but nothing of this caliber so i was i remember being very nervous about showing her the final version and she was so complimentary and such a huge supporter That, and again, she has every right to be because she's a huge reason why this film works. I mean, a tremendous reason. I I always joke around about this, but part of the reason that I feel that Krista is a movie that I still say is the best thing I've ever had my name on. And it turned out pretty much exactly the way I wanted it. The trick to that, especially as a first-time director, is make sure to surround yourself with people that are more talented than yourself. I had an amazing cinematographer. I had an amazing crew. Um, my cast was phenomenal. Um, the um, uh, all of those things combined. The score was just just I abs- The score is one of those things where it's not only uh, it's not only one of my favorite scores in an independent film. It's it's one of my favorite scores in any film. Matt Surgeon did a phenomenal job on this. So it's like, uh, gathering everybody together that was that talented, that's what made this movie as good as it is. I I mean, like I said, I I couldn't be happier. Now, as far as advancement with Cheyenne Day's career, Cheyenne's uh, very interesting to me in the sense that I don't know if she even necessarily wants a career in independent cinema. I know... We've worked together since, and she does a phenomenal job. She's going to continue to work with me as long as she wants to. I would cast her in absolutely anything. But Cheyenne is very comfortable in her own personal life, and I think this is just something that she does
0: for fun, and I have to respect that. There was a montage of cameos near the end of the movie with Sasha Graham, Scooter McCray, and J.R. Bookwalder. Did you write these parts with them in mind, or did you approach them after the fact?
1: When I wrote the script, the only two um, cameos that I had that I knew who I wanted for were um, Barb Norod, who had played uh, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Jackson, the, uh, the woman who knocks on uh, the neighbor that's uh, knocking on Stephen's door and J.R.'s uh, uh, orderly uh, uh, character. And the Jr. scene, actually, I didn't even know if I could do, because, like, like I said, we weren't even speaking at the time. It was something that I was planning on reaching out to him and seeing if he'd be willing to do the cameo. It wasn't until I started casting that it dawned on me I had two other roles that I thought would make for good cameos, and I had reached out to Sasha Graham, who... Uh, was no longer acting. She had not done a film in 16 years and realistically was an incredibly successful, or is a, an incredibly successful author at this point. She does not need this. This is not something that she needed to do. She had her acting days and she's now moved on. And she was so supportive and so excited that she, she agreed to come aboard we had a phenomenal time and I actually ended up using her in a neck another project where I actually cast her as the lead. So now she is accepting new roles and I think that's, I I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that she's gotten back into it because she's an incredibly talented actress. In fact, I would go as far as to say Sasha Graham is one of my favorite people to work with as far as performers, because she's incredibly talented and she and I have this incredible brother sister relationship where it's like, I remember when we shot, um, the next uh, feature that I'd done with with Sasha N. She's coming from New York, and I d- went to drop her off. She she, li- she enjoys taking the Amtrak because she gets the opportunity to write on the train. And the Amtrak was four hours late. And we literally sat in a gas station diner and just had the most fun in the world, just, just talking and laughing. And, and, and it's it's something I really look forward to. Um, Scooter, on the other hand, um, again, who is not an actor, but, uh, had, had done a few roles. Um, I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for him as a director. Uh, Shattered Dead is one of my favorite indie films of all time, if not my favorite indie film of all time. And I had contacted him and again, he was very excited to do it. We, um, we shot his scenes. Actually, we, he didn't even have to leave New York because we shot his scenes via Skype and again, so supportive, just so, yeah, you know, just a, just a blast to work with, and I love him to death. I, I really, truly do. Um, there was initially one more cameo that I wanted to get, and there was supposed to be a scene. And again, time wise, thank God it wasn't, because the last thing this movie needed was to be longer. But there was going to be a scene where Stephen is getting supplies to cover up the fact that Krista is smelling up the neighborhood. And it was supposed to be in a uh, like this little uh, this little grocery store, and there was going to be a clerk there. And I initially had thought of Joe Daw from um, Polymorph and Bloodletting, and Joe had since moved to, I believe, Arizona, so that wasn't a possibility. I was talking to um, uh, Pete Ferry, who was uh, rainy in The Dead Next Door, and unfortunately, Pete. Is, well, not unfortunately. Thank God. I mean, he's working, but. Um, He's now uh, SAG, and we, we couldn't, we, we wouldn't have been able to afford him. So it was just one of those things where I finally just, just killed the scene. It was like, well, we've got four really good cameos. We don't really need a fifth, and just let it go from there. But yeah, I was thrilled with all four performances. I, I think they're a blast. I know, what was it? Um, one of the best things as far as when I asked the four people to be involved, um, when I. When Jr. and I began speaking again, uh, and I told him I needed him for a cameo, he's like, "Well, you know, I don't like acting, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm well aware." I'm like, "Why do you think I want you to do it?" And he's like, "Well, I feel like I," he's like, "I want to say no, but I feel like kind of owe you." I'm like, "Yeah, you do. You're, you're going to do this cameo." <laughs> and oddly enough, it's like he did the cameo, and then even then, he did the majority of the post production uh, uh, work on it. So yeah, he 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 had a tremendous amma- he was
0: a tremendous amount of help on this film. I know you've had a lot of issues with distribution and Amazon. What have been your problems and have you worked them out? I'm
1: probably one of the worst people to talk to about distribution because I'm incredibly bitter about it. Um, when we had finalized Krista, we had eight offers on the film. Five of them, I believe, five of them were so incredibly offensive that I just turned them down immediately. One of them, I liked the guy and I liked the company, but the run was so small it just didn't make any sense. I would end up making more money self-distributing than I would have with the with them. One of them was a tremendous supporter of the film. I mean, a tremendous, even going as far as uh, to reach out to me and say, "Look, you know, we we don't do indie films anymore, but this is one of the best indie films that has come across our desk." We're we're not going to distribute it, but we'd like to help you find a home for it because we don't want it to get lost in the process. And even then, while working with them, we were trying to reach a deal where they would actually release it. Um, The problem was, financially, it just didn't make any sense. And then the last one, we had a deal that was ready to go, and when I finally agreed to their terms, they put me on radio silence for four months, refusing to answer any text, voicemails, or Facebook messages. So I, to this day, I have no clue what happened with that. I thought we had a done deal with it. Um, and again, it's a shame because I really liked the guy. He he um, approached me as a fan. Um, to be quite honest with you, I didn't think that the company was right for the project because of the fact that they were kind of known more for the hardcore kind of stuff, and this really isn't. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think we have a really great payoff, but we're also asking the audience to sit through a romantic drama. If that's specifically what they're looking for, they're going to be very disappointed. You know. Um, But yeah, I was willing to consider it, and when I did finally say, yeah, I want to push forward with it, I never heard from them again. So I have no clue what happened with that. So no, I'm probably the wrong person to talk to about distributors, because I'm very bitter. It just seems to me like the majority of them will hit you with, well we love your movie but we want to change the title, we want to change the poster, we want to change um, a- anything that resembles what this movie is. And Oh, by the way, we're going to cut a half an hour out of it. Now, the good news is we're not going to pay you anything up front. but once we meet our manufacturing costs, which will be between 15000 and $20,000, we will let you know once you sign the contract. Then you're going to get between 50 and 30 percent of what we make. And it's like, well, no, I, I don't want to do that at all, you know? Now, again, am I sacrificing an audience for that? I don't know. I mean, as you can tell, I'm a huge collector, but it seems to me more and more physical media is dead. You know, everything at this point is going streaming, so I don't necessarily know if we need distributors anymore. I know I'll never be happy with the amount of Sales that I'm doing as far as self distribution because my main goal is to get the movie out to as many people as humanly possible and when you're dealing with a budget that isn't necessarily a big budget film but at the same token you've dumped a lot of money into it's nice to make a profit you know so what do I do do I slowly trickle it in with a self- distribution deal or do I go with a distributor the chances are you're not going to see a penny I mean most of the people that I talk to that have had their re- film released, through a uh, distribution company, have seen very little money. And I think that's a shame. But the problem is, it's a buyer's market right now. There's so many people doing independent films that, and a good majority of them, only want the recognition. So that being said, it's like it does, It's not even a matter of, okay, your movie's good. It's a matter of, oh, your movie's going to cost us money,
0: and this one won't. So um, it's a shame, but that that's kind of the way it is. You have worked through the video craze, and now you're entering the streaming world. Which is better? You know what? I, I'm hesitant to say which is better because I'm still very new into
1: the whole streaming world. I can tell you that the video craze was great only because of the time period. Because at the time, we were a big fish in a very, very small pond. Now you've got a massive pond filled with an unlimited supply of tiny fish. And it's one of those things where it's much harder to find your audience because everybody has so many choices now. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that it makes it a lot more difficult. Now, is it easier to get your film seen? Yes and no. Um, The good thing about the 90s were the fact that you were very limited as far as an audience member on who was making these films. Um, I remember being very, very naive going into this and speaking to independent directors who had been doing this, as far as directing, much, much longer than I had been, and their biggest complaint was, well, you know, uh, because of YouTube and everything, it's not uh, filmmaking, anybody can make a movie, and it's not being taken seriously, and I'm like, well again, very stupidly looking back on it, very ignorantly, I'm like, well, I think that's a good thing because that means that we have to step up our game and create something very special. Well, that was idiotic of me. I take that back 100%. And the reason I take that back is, again, it's not a matter of whose movie is better. It's a matter of, are you willing to sacrifice in order to get your audience? Because again, you're talking about a two-hour movie that's... 75% 75% uh, 75% romantic drama and 25 25% horror. Well, that's not exactly the easiest uh, thing to market, you know. But what is easy to market is, hey, we've got this guy and he's got an axe and he's chasing half-naked teenagers in the woods. Fuck, I could sell that for fucking days. So again, it's just a matter of I don't know which I I, I don't know if any of them are better. I, I think it's honestly one of those things where I think it's mostly about luck. I think it's mostly about finding the right, the right movie at the right
0: time. Even though making a movie is actually easier to do these days technically, and streaming can open it up to a bigger audience, do you think this will open people up to better no-budget movies or a lot of people just capitalizing on an easier market, much like the early Tempe days?
1: Again, it's difficult to say. It's one of those things where, at least in my experience, I don't think it's necessarily a lack of talent as far as filmmaking. I do wish a lot of filmmakers nowadays would concentrate a lot more on their scripts. Um, And again, that's just my own personal preference. I've always been a fan of dialogue. I realize that on, on this level it is very difficult to find actors that are able to perform dialogue, but it's not impossible. It it takes a little work, but it can be done. Um, And again, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of just wall-to-wall gore. There's nothing wrong with that. Is it something I want to make? No, no, not in the least bit. But I I respect it. I mean, it, it definitely gets an audience. It's just one of those things where I would like to see a little more solidarity in the independent community. And I don't think there's ever been. I'm not going to be one of those guys that talk about the old days. No, we were just as shit-talking and cutthroat back in the 90s as everybody is now. I just, one thing that I've found is a lot of filmmakers are so desperate to make sure that their fellow filmmakers fail. And I don't know, I just, I I, I take issue with that. I, I would like to see a little more camaraderie but but who knows who knows what I, I guess that's that's not necessarily an an indie cinema thing i guess that's that's worldwide
0: your imdb account shows a lot of work in shorts and movies for this year has your career taken off again because of her name was krista um my bank account would tell you that no my
1: career is not taken off this year but i will say that i've done what i set out to do um i like i said i lost out on a good 10 to 13 years of roles because of a personal decision I'm working really hard now to make sure that that's made up for you know I I am getting the opportunity to work on more films I'm meeting new filmmakers um, i have I just I basically I've been very fortunate and again a lot of that I chalk up to the fact that I was very fortunate in my youth to be involved at such a young age where a lot of people Don't necessarily know who I am. There are a lot of indie filmmakers that do, and that's secured me a lot of roles, which has been fantastic. So I'm just going to keep riding it until I can.
0: So what's next on your plate?
1: Well, at this point, now that Krista is finally out, we are pimping the hell out of that. We're we're trying to uh, to basically get the word out and get the movie seen, but. Uh, one thing that I kind of kept under my hat was that we've already completed a second movie. We, um, uh, it's a horror anthology. It came about because my director of photography, Gordon Cameron, had suggested that we do a couple of short films in order to attempt to secure investors. And I disagreed because not that I, I mean, I respect short, uh, short film makers I just I never understood the point of them i I just to me it's like i I don't have any interest in doing competitions. I don't have any interest in it's like if you're gonna make a movie, I want it to be seen and aside from a aside from festivals that again I, I don't know it's just i'm again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. it's just not my thing. so my terms on that was that's fine, but let's try and come up with something to turn this into an anthology to, to hopefully actually make money on it to. Move those profits to the next project. So we uh, we started a production during our downtime on Christa on post production. Uh, that's a horror anthology that's tentatively called uh, um, Sin Incorporated, and the whole idea is it's three three stories uh, that are um, uh, it's three stories that are wrapped around with the idea that Drew Fortier uh, Nick from Christa plays an attorney who is actually the gatekeeper to hell. And characters from each of the short stories should go before him to find out whether they're going to hell or not, if their sin was great enough to go to hell. And Again, it's three stories. Um, Mama's Boy, which was written by uh, myself and Jonathan A. Moody, uh, which stars Sasha Graham, um, Tim Hale, and Kaylee, uh, Kaylee Williams. Um, First Date, which stars me and uh, Cheyenne Day. And Skunkweed, that was written by me, but I actually had director Brad Twig, who I had worked with on uh, Wrestle Massacre and Killer Camp Out, direct that segment. And it stars Rick Germain, also from uh, uh, from Krista. So we're finishing that up now. One of the, uh, Another cool thing about that was I was able to also get uh, cameos from uh, director Adam Clevenger, who did a really fantastic uh, indie film in Dayton called People to Kill as well as Jeff Berkman, who was in uh, Jim Van Bevers' uh, My Sweet Satan and The Manson Family. So it, I'm really looking forward to that. We are just into post-production now and hoping to have that out this summer, probably around August, if I had to guess. In the meantime, I'm also producing a uh, um, 70s uh, mafia uh, drama um, for Tim Novotny, who directed Pharisee and Vile Prey, who was also uh, my, lighting, uh, uh, my chief lighting technician on Krista. Uh, called Gemini, and I'm really looking forward to that because not only do I get to produce it, I get to play a completely vile character. I'm essentially a cross-dressing mafia hitman, and I'm really... We shot the promo for that, and it's it's going to be a blast. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I also have been doing some short films for um, my sound uh, uh, engineer... Um, well, I'm sorry, my sound recordist, uh, Dave Bachmeier, and we're doing. Uh, we did uh, back again, and we're getting ready, or we just finished up the Impersonator, and getting ready to do a film called Slime Time. And these are all shorts, but they're all. I believe they're going to be featured in um, anthologies through uh, uh, Brad Twig's uh, company. So, so again, um, and then lastly, um, I'm hopeful that once the anthology comes out, that we can raise the budget for a uh, revenge film that I've written called Trivial. So it's already cast. We're ready to go with it. It's just money's always an issue. We've got to love indie filmmaking.
0: Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Draculina Podcast. If you'd like to comment on this edition, there should be a spot somewhere where you can add your thoughts. There also should be a spot down there where you can record your thoughts, but I might use it in a future podcast, so be careful what you say. You can also contact me the old-fashioned way via email at dracdirect at gmail.com. Or you can send me a message through either of my websites, uh, draculina.com and horriblehue.com. Okay, that's it. Keep it real and don't let life suck the life out of you.